0: Let's start this evening with a story from the Chinese uh, Chan, Zen tradition. And this is the story of a monk who was called uh, Te Shan. He lived, I think, sometime in the 9th century. He was um, renowned as a great scholar, in particular... An expert in the uh, perfection of wisdom, and we mentioned uh, before when Hueneng, Neng, as a young boy, was walking down the road, he heard a monk chanting the Diamond Sutra and heard the words, where the mind has nowhere to rest, and achieved some breakthrough, some epiphany, some insight. Well, Teshan was um, a scholar monk rather than a Zen monk and prided himself on his knowledge of this particular body of of Buddhist uh, literature. And he got wind one day that down in the south there were these uh, uh, chan or meditation teachers who were saying that You could gain direct insight into the nature of things without relying upon texts. Now this was for him like the proverbial red flag to the bull. And he said, I'm going to go down there and sort these people out. We don't want any of this. So he heads off and starts walking, probably following a similar route to our aforementioned Hui Zhang. And while on this journey, he comes to a village and he um, sees an old lady uh, sitting by the side of the road who's selling um, some sort of drink, maybe tea or something, I don't know. And um, he goes up to this old lady and he asked for a drink, and she said, well, who are you? And he said, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a very learned man. I'm an expert on the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras. Now, please give me a cup of tea. <laughs> and she said, okay. But um, I'm only going to serve you a drink if you can answer me one question. Since the mind of the past cannot be found since the mind of the present cannot be found and since the mind of the future cannot be found which mind do you want to refresh with this drink (laughs) and uh, poor old Deshan was left speechless And at that point, began to have serious doubts about what he was doing. And through the advice of the old lady, he goes to the hermitage of a monk called Lu Tang, I think, who's a meditation teacher, a Zen teacher, and spends some time studying with him, in the course of which he ritually burns all his books, goes into a, a solitary retreat and achieves the kinds of insights characteristic of Zen Buddhism. And over time, becomes a teacher in his own right. Now, Teishan's a good example of the more extreme iconoclastic uh, tendency within Zen this is a passage that's attributed to him he says here there are no ancestors there are no Buddhas that Bodhidharma is just a stinking foreigner (laughs) Shakyamuni Buddha is just a dried up piece of shit awakening or enlightenment Nirvana. These are just posts for tethering donkeys. The scriptural canon is written by demons. It's just paper for wiping infected skin boils. None of these things will save you. What is known as realizing the mystery is nothing but breaking through to an ordinary person's life. It's nothing but breaking through to an ordinary person's life. Now, so what's going on here? I think at one level, um, this is um, a, a moment, or one of many moments in which the chinese are making buddhism their own there is a very conscious departure with the authority that has come from china from india into china and upheld by those who as it were represent the venerable and ancient traditions of buddhism But it's also, of course, um, in the spirit of what we've already looked at, um, a recognition that that what really matters in this or really any kind of practice is not to just keep repeating um, wise utterances from the past. It's not about preserving a tradition pure and intact. We often hear, in fact, even today, that we should preserve the Dharma, forgetting that the only things we preserve in the rest of our lives are things that are already dead, like plums and apples, that we preserve them. And there's a danger, I think, it comes perhaps from a very genuine Respect, maybe veneration for the wisdom of a great tradition, but such veneration can also subtly shift into a kind of um, a kind of stasis, stuckness, a kind of extreme conservatism, where we're very very reluctant or feel extremely um, unqualified or um, unlegitimated to actually make our own um, comments or our own observations. We have to make sure that what we say is in keeping with the tradition. Same can be said about Zen, you see, too. There's also something rather peculiar in this kind of passage, is that although, according to Te Shan, canonical texts are just paper for wiping infected skin boils, where do we get this text from but a written document that's been passed down to us? As soon as something is enshrined in a scripture, even a Zen scripture, even a text like this, which sounds pretty shocking, it's actually already been neutralized. It's become domesticated. It's become... um, It's been given the official stamp of approval. And I think its power is thereby, to some extent, lost. If, without any contextualization, I'd said something like that to you. It would have had a very different effect. And in fact, some of the comments I've made in the last couple of talks have elicited a couple of notes saying um, maybe you shouldn't be so critical of traditional Buddhism. It'll put people off going to the centers and learning how to meditate. And so it's okay if this sort of language is found in a hallowed text, but woe betide anybody who has the nerve to say such things themselves, then it's considered a little bit scary, a little bit um, uh, destabilizing, a little bit disrespectful. But if we are to really take the spirit of this tradition then I think we also have to be open to having the courage of our own convictions and not to constantly pander to the authority of the tradition, even a tradition like Zen, which is a kind of anti-tradition. And I think this is a an important um, element in what we call uh, the transmission of the Dharma from the East to the West. It's really, I think, a question of finding our own voice. Much in the same way that Te Shan and Hui Neng give voice to these things in their own idioms, in their own style, without Um, hesitation, without um, qualification. And what we come down to in the end is an encounter with an ordinary person's life. Our own life, basically. People often say that Zen or Buddhism or Tibetan Tantra are coming to the West, are coming uh, to Europe or America. But what does that mean? It's not as though Buddhism has somehow got wings or Zen has sandals on it that walk across continents. There's no such thing as Buddhism or Zen in that sense at all. So what is it that comes To the West. The only way in which this uh, tradition, these teachings, these ideas, these practices, these values find their way into another culture is through ordinary people's lives. And ordinary people is you and me. Nobody else is going to do it. But Buddhism doesn't stand a chance if it's not embodied and realized in ordinary people's lives. Our lives. Otherwise it's just a nice idea. And it might come in the form of exotic um, doctrines and beautiful temples and lovely paintings but all of that is really just external trappings. It's really not of the essence at all. The, the, uh, the heartbeat lies in our own internalization and um, manifestation of those things in the specifics of our own existence. And the Buddha is the same, you see. I think the Buddha, again, we without knowing, having a clear sense of the historical conditions under which the Buddha taught, we don't really appreciate the extent to which he too was um, breaking with the traditions of his culture, of Brahmanical Hinduism. And initiating something completely new, of course, it still has elements of Indian thought within it, but it's really a departure. He calls it, he calls his teaching something that that goes against the stream. It's somehow counterintuitive, it's not what you expect, it uh, uh, challenges received opinion. Of the day. And I feel that for a tradition like Buddhism to be a living thing, it constantly needs to be somehow um, living on that edge, not just repeating hallowed doctrine and practices, but embodying them in such a way that we find our own voice. Our own authority. Of course, this takes time. Historically, these processes have have taken centuries. But I don't think that's an excuse to somehow keep on deferring our own um, uh, our own attempts, our own courage to. Uh, embody and to articulate what in fact is uh, that this is all about. Haltingly, imperfectly, no doubt, but better that than simply repeating um, honoured views and, and opinions. And I think all of this points to a question that's come up a couple of times already. And that is, how do we um, give expression to the kind of practice that we're doing, let's say, on this retreat? It's all very well to um, spend this time focusing on the asking of this question what is this what is it and uh, suspending judgment um, not being attached to any particular view or opinion or dogma or doctrine just remaining in that open state of perplexity of wonderment of presence of mind But how does that serve as um, a foundation? How does that connect to what we think and what we say and what we do? We can't go through life just repeating, What is this? We have to make choices, we have to make decisions. We have to interact with people who are not remotely interested in Zen Buddhism. You can't go to a meeting when you get back home, let's say next Monday morning, and agenda item one is blah, 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 and your response is, what is this? (laughs) (laughs) Clearly we need something... Else, so what does that mean? Do we leave behind the whole experience we have had this week, and just revert to our our usual behaviour? Is meditation a sort of a holiday from daily life, a nice sort of you know recreational activity? and then when we go back home we put on our suit and our tie and we we get back to business as usual as though really we may have been no we may have just as well have gone to the Costa del Sol for a week i suspect all of us recognize that you know that's not the case and it's at this point in a retreat when we have to start reflecting on on how do we um, we bring what we're doing here back into our ordinary person's life. Um, since I've mentioned already the Greek philosopher Pyrrho, who again was someone who practiced something sort of similar to this. There's um, a passage... Um, from a fellow called Anesidemus, who um, who said of Pyrrho, he said, although Pyrrho practiced philosophy on the principles of the suspension of judgment, he did not act carelessly in the details of everyday life. It's the, it's the same kind of of dilemma, or is it a dilemma, or is it just an apparent problem? To the extent to which this um, practice, what is this? Is uh, framed within um, the world view, let's say, of Buddhist tradition then we have to, I think, acknowledge that it doesn't exist as something independent and uh, distinct from all other elements of the tradition. It's an integral part of a wider, larger whole. And practice, in the broadest sense can't be just reduced to being proficient at doing certain forms of meditation. I think it's often the case, unfortunately, that when the word practice is used nowadays um, in, in Buddhist circles, and maybe in other religious circles too, I don't know, but we tend to think of it rather reductively as performing a certain spiritual exercise. If you ask a bunch of Buddhist types, you know, what's your practice? The knee jerk answer is usually to name a spiritual exercise Oh, I practice vipassana. Oh, I practice Zen. I practice Vajrayana. I practice um, chanting. Whatever it is. But practice is far wider, far broader than that. Practice, at least in the way uh, the Buddha used this word, refers to every element of an ordinary person's life. And traditionally, traditionally, Uh, this is uh, phrased in terms of of the eightfold path. The way we see things, think about them, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we work, the way we, we apply ourselves. And then, of course, the way we pay attention, the way we practice mindfulness, concentration, and so on. So you clearly have far more to the notion of practice than just asking what is this so where does that fit in say the classical uh, framework of, of Buddhist thought I would argue that this Zen practice is the practice of the first noble truth You're familiar, I guess, with the four noble truths. The the, the noble truth of suffering. And the second noble truth is that to do with craving, grasping. The third noble truth has to do with nirvana or, or stopping. And the fourth noble truth is this noble eightfold path that I just sketched now often these four truths are presented as four um, doctrines life is suffering the origin of suffering is grasping the cessation of suffering is nirvana and the way to nirvana is the practice of the eightfold path that's the official line and clearly that Doctrine, that view goes back to a very, very early period. But I would like to suggest that that might not be the right way to see it. I have a suspicion that that particular way of looking at the four noble truths is a kind of Um, metaphysical or theoretical approach, one that presents these truths as a body of doctrines that we can believe or not believe rather than a set of um, injunctions or suggestions, something to do. I'm not going to go into this in any great detail here Just to point out that in the conclusion of the Buddha's first sermon he clearly states that his awakening was only complete when he had recognized, performed and accomplished four tasks. Each of these truths is a task. It's something to do. The first truth, dukkha, suffering, is something to be completely and fully known and embraced. The second truth, grasping, is something to be let go of. The third truth, stopping or Nibbana, is to be experienced for yourself. And the fourth truth, the path, is to be created, cultivated, brought into being. And I think what we have here is an outline of an ordinary person's life. And if we think of it in terms of a series of tasks... Then what we find is that the first task, fully knowing dukkha, is something we are actually doing when we ask ourselves the question, "What is this?" Remember when the Bukha did, when, when the, Bukha, when the Buddha defines dukkha) <clears throat> When the booker defines duba, <laughs> he says, Birth, sickness, aging, death. This is dukkha. And how is the this of what is this understood? It's often understood as the great matter of birth and death. And as we've mentioned many times now, when we ask what is this we're not asking what is this rook or what is this carpet we're asking what is this total experience I'm in now what is this life what is this uh, extraordinary and weird and wondrous state we're in this state that has come into being at some point when we were born and at some point in the future maybe tomorrow maybe in 50 years it will stop so when we ask what is this we're not in Zen trying to sort of get into the nuts and bolts of Buddhist doctrine but we are very much encountering and questioning, and seeking to embrace as totally as we can the condition we are in as human beings, as sentient beings, as feeling creatures, as sensitive animals. And we're saying, what is this? And allowing ourselves to be totally open to dukkha. Or, as the Buddha also says, Dukkha is the five aggregates. Again, one of these Buddhist jargon terms. What that refers to is, again, the totality of one's experience from what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, feel, think to our mental processes, our feelings, our perceptions, our thoughts, our intentions, our emotions to the fact that we're conscious of all this as a seamless whole. That's also what he calls dukkha. What is this? Now my sense is that if we were able to, to live our lives, our ordinary person's life, with a greater Uh, sensitivity and awareness of this condition we're in then that would start to have an effect on how we relate to ourselves and to others in the world. And I'm sure we've had these sorts of experiences. When for example a loved one, a partner or a parent or a child has been very ill, very sick. And you've had to care and tend for that person. And in doing so, you've been constantly made conscious of how this treasured person's life might end. They might die. They might be crippled. In such a frame of mind, I think. We unavoidably part or lose a trivial relationship to things. A busy, neurotic, selfish perspective simply cannot operate when we're faced with such uh, a tragedy or potential tragedy. The very experience of being in the presence of of sickness and death, ageing, being fully present, not just slipping into the right kind of social protocols and conventions that we usually grasp at in order to make these situations manageable. Also birth, if we're present at birth, the birth of a child. We're somehow taken away from our our mundane preoccupations, our our self centered uh, desires and fears and fantasies and longings. And we encounter the world in a kind of what is this sense. That in some ways, if we, the more that we are able to sustain, That kind of perspective. And I don't mean by that that we, you know, every five minutes we are obliged to say, What is this? That's actually not the point at all. If this practice is to be effective, it somehow has to percolate into our everyday, ordinary person's life and consciousness. So that it starts to become um, uh, more and more a kind of of, of sensibility. Unspoken, silent. There's no need to repeat words. It's something we're all familiar with at some level anyway. But what this practice does, and I think probably all uh, such practices is that it somehow heightens or sharpens that particular dimension of our our consciousness of being. And so when the second noble truth talks of letting go of craving or grasping, this is actually simply the natural and organic consequence of a life lived from a perspective of of dukkha, of what is this, of birth, sickness, aging, death. That in a way, the uh, such a questioning, such a, a perspective um, exposes the the absurdity of so many of our compulsions and attachments, and plans. It's, it, it, it begins to instill a certain dimension of depth into our lives. where these things, these these graspings, attachments, etc., etc., simply don't really have anywhere to rest, or to, to hold to. I mean, they're habits, they're conditionings. They're doubtless rooted in our biological survival mechanisms. They'll keep being around, but we don't have to buy into them. We don't have to take them so seriously, to be so caught up in them. And that again, of course, is something you see in meditation. You know, despite your your sincere um, intention to to stay with this question, for example, completely sincere, is you really genuinely want to do this, you try doing it and yet you, are, you unleash, that's what it feels like sometimes, a kind of tumult of trivial thoughts. Compulsive thoughts, fantasies, daydreams, memories, all of which are completely uninteresting. And yet they they won't let go. And you won't get rid of them by suppressing them, by fighting them. You have to somehow say, yes, this is life. But you don't have to buy into them either. And there is, I think, the first glimpse of the possibility of another kind of freedom in which we find ourselves no longer being impelled or conditioned to think or speak or respond according to the promptings of our our fears, say, or our attachments. And that, those moments of freedom are, in fact, what the Buddha calls nirvana. Nirvana is not some special mystical state, some sort of Buddhist heaven. But actually, it's there in any moment when you're not uh, determined or conditioned or driven by those kinds of impulses. Classically, it's greed, hatred, confusion. Confusion meaning our attachment or identification with me. And in moments in meditation, in moments in ordinary everyday life, we find that we are in fact free not to act on those imperatives. And that freedom is the third noble truth. The the, the the falling away of grasping, craving, etc. is the second noble truth. And that freedom is what gives rise to the possibility of living otherwise. Living uh, from a perspective which is not conditioned by such things. And such a life is the Eightfold Path, at least that's the the Buddhist jargon term. But what it refers to is the whole of our life can be um, somehow lived from another perspective. And this, in early Buddhism, is called entering the stream. The path is compared to a stream, a flow of water, In Zen, they talk about satori, they talk about kensho, breakthrough. And I think that's basically the same kind of thing. It's moments in which we suddenly find another way of being, another way of living. Not in some theoretical sense or through some act of faith, but actually through our own inner experience. Now we don't actually in Zen Buddhism per se uh, hear or read much about the Four Noble Truths at all. But what we do read about are what are called the Four Great Vows. The Four Great Vows. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to liberate them all. Defilements are infinite. I vow to overcome them all. Dharma gates are endless. I vow to enter them all. The Buddha way goes on forever. I vow to follow it. It seems to me that this is another way of... Articulating the four noble truths. Sentient beings are limited. Sentient beings, of course, are those who suffer and I vow to liberate them. That's the truth of Dukkha and how we may choose to respond to it. It's an engagement. Defilements are infinite. I vow to overcome them. Defilements, well, the classic defilement is craving, grasping. I vow to overcome it, to let go of it. Dharma gates, well if you think about it, a gate is, a, is an empty space. It's where something is, um, Where it's a, it's a space through which you can move without hindrance. It's a free space. And in that sense it's like the stopping of grasping, the stopping of craving, nirvana. It's not a static thing, but it's something through which you go in order to enter another way of life. And the fourth vow, the path of the Buddha is without end. I vow to tread it, that of course seems to refer quite clearly, to the eightfold path. Now the beauty of that formulation in Zen is it captures the paradoxical nature of this business. It acknowledges that in a way there is no end to any of this. We're not really or realistically positing some kind of end result. Sentient beings are limitless, they're infinite defilements are infinite Dharma gates are infinite the path is infinite there's no way we can ever complete these tasks but that's I think very true to life itself that no matter how wise or compassionate or how many retreats we've done the challenges of life will keep presenting themselves to us without end until our last breath so these four vows are in Zen the way in which we frame the practice we're doing that the what is this leads us to the falling away of certain habits what Dogen calls the, the, the dropping away of body and mind which leads us to moments of, of insight, of opening the Dharma gate, which leads us to the path. It's not the path that we don't start on the path, we get to the path. And then we continue with the first task of encountering suffering and suffering beings and seeking to do good in the world. It's all part of an ongoing feedback loop and the person who does this again is not a fixed point that never changes not a kind of a static ego but the person is what evolves and grows and matures and develops through this process and I do think it's important to recognize that Although we often hear the fact that in Buddhism they say there is no self. That may be the case in terms of the Buddha's rejection of the traditional Indian idea of the Atman, sort of an eternal soul. But the Buddha did not reject the notion of self. In fact, he saw, he uses the word self, Atta, in a perfectly non-problematic way. Uh, In the 80th verse of the Dhammapada, it says, Just as a farmer (coughs) cultivates a field, just as an arrowsmith fashions an arrow, just as a carpenter shapes a piece of wood, so the wise person trains the self. In other words, the Buddha understands the self not as a fixed thing that never changes nor as something that doesn't exist but again coming back to this middle way neither being nor not being but rather endlessly becoming like a field that is irrigated and things grow like the pieces of an arrow that are put together and then give rise to this weapon or a, a block of wood that is carved and shaped and sculpted until it becomes something else. That's in a way the understanding of of who we are. We are not fixed things, we're not non-existent, we are Endlessly becoming. And the framework within which that evolution, that development takes place, is within these four vows, these four truths, of which, what is this? Is, perhaps, our starting point. It's the point to which we come back. But it's part of a larger process. And I'd like to conclude with just a couple of... um, actually just with one quotation that one of the participants here gave to me on a little note it's by a um, again a a Tang dynasty which means 7th to 9th century Chinese uh, Chan teacher called Layman Pang he's one of the few uh, non-monastic figures perhaps someone we can relate to. And he says, my daily activities are not unusual. I'm just naturally in harmony with them, grasping nothing, discarding nothing. In every place there is no hindrance, no conflict. My supernatural powers, my marvelous activities drawing water and chopping wood or as we might phrase it today sending emails (laughs) and seeing
1: clients
0: (laughs) we don't want to romanticize this too much but again this verse is a very beautiful um, account of An ordinary person's life. There's another phrase which you've probably heard that's quite famous in Zen Buddhism. It says, Before I practiced Zen, rivers were rivers and mountains were mountains. When I was practicing Zen, saying, What is this? rivers were not rivers. And mountains were not mountains. And after I practiced Zen, rivers were rivers and mountains were mountains. Which again suggests this kind of feedback loop. That we don't do this practice in order to elevate ourselves into some sort of spiritual superiority. Superiority we might go through some quite uh, strange and maybe unsettling changes of perception. Everything that we've assumed to be the case might be thrown into question. But when we get up from the cushion, when we go out into the world, it's the same world that we left before, but with a slightly different twist or shift or angle or perspective. And again, not to think of it as a finality, but as part of an unfolding process. So tomorrow night, actually, Martin is going to speak more about the Bodhisattva vow. So this is perhaps also um, a kind of introduction to that. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Um, I've spoken a little longer than I should have done. There's time for a couple of questions. Yes?
1: Do <laughs> you understand that as reducing grasping greed and delusion or as ending? Because
0: when you really talk about a multitude order of uh. Which is not necessarily a bad thing,
1: but it's different from an avatar which sort of evokes the idea of just not being narrow
0: at any times. Yeah, I I understand this again somewhat in the phrasing of the vows that the defilements are endless, and I, and I think you get this um, idea in the early canon where the Buddha speaks of his relationship to Mara, the devil. And what's striking in the dialogues between the Buddha and Mara is that although on becoming the Buddha, becoming enlightened, it's said that he overcomes Mara, he overcomes the devil. The devil continues to reappear to the Buddha right up until his death, 45 years later. So I think what that's pointing to is that um, these you know, attachment fear desire confusion these things are I think simply built into our human organism they're not things that we can realistically hope to somehow delete and be done with forever I think they're part of our humanity actually and I think the part of the the, the 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 practice that we're doing is actually only conceivable in as a response to, as a uh, struggle with, as an ongoing um, working with this very stuff. You can't have Buddha without Mara. You can't have enlightenment without confusion. The two things are entirely bound up one with the other. That's how I would see it. I think all we can realistically hope for is... you know. A diminishing perhaps of our tendency to screw up. <laughs> Another good quote comes from Hueneng actually on this. Uh, he says when, um, when an ordinary person becomes a Buddha, uh, sorry, when an ordinary person becomes enlightened, we call them a Buddha. When a Buddha becomes deluded, we call them an ordinary person. Which I think uh, captures very beautifully that this Buddha Mara divide. They're not two things. It's not. The, the, then in a sense, I think we have to recognize that this is our condition. And even the Buddha was tempted by Mara, as it were. Um, that awakening or delusion are not. Um, you know, not too. you know, delusion is at one end of the path, the beginning, and enlightenment is at the other. But actually, delusion and enlightenment are possibilities in each moment. We can respond in an enlightened way or a deluded way, whoever we are. That the, 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 the each moment carries the potentials for both. So each moment is a challenge to be a Buddha or to be a devil. That is the practice in a way. Uh, If we put it into our ordinary person's life, in what we say and do and our work, every moment is an opportunity to be Buddha-like or not. That's the practice, really. What, What we're doing here is just a preparation for that.
1: If we if we talk of uh, secularizing Buddhism, mm. now the, the very word secular, a, I like it, but it has the kind of a Presbyterian <laughs> and, and we know what the attitude of a Presbyterian and morality is towards mm. the devil, as it were, and so sometimes I'm a little suspicious of this. Uh, And we do find in the Western tradition but also Dogen, for example, Mm. he he talks of what they used to be called Kuge in Japanese, the flowers of uh, flowers in the sky, Uh. uh, castles of Saturn. Mm. He turns it around and calls it uh, flowers of emptiness. Mm. So something to use uh, in a kind of alchemic way rather than something to crush or mm. away from. And the same with the with the so-called devil. I mean in the existential tradition some people call them these energies magnificent monsters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe I don't know whether I'm going away from the task that we're doing here, but I'm thinking more of the conscious thing. We're mm-hmm. to evolve energies and use them With them and look at them and be with them Mm. rather than trying to become
0: free from them. Free from Mm.
1: the touch. Sometimes I there is a ring in what we do sometimes. It's a little, it's almost a put down on the the very Mm. mark of the pseudo growth, etc. So I don't have a solution but it's I'm
0: aware of that and suspicious of that mm. uh, fear. Yeah, I, no, I, I think I, 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 I sympathize with that. I also have that struggle. As soon as we set up a binary opposition, we've got that problem, however we frame it. And uh, I do like the idea in, in Vajrayana that, um, that Buddha and Mara, if you like, are just different configurations of one energetic pattern. And that's how I would prefer to see this idea of freedom. It's not about deleting anything. It's not about destroying something, overcoming something. It's about uh, experiencing it, seeing it, understanding it in another way, in which it starts to have a different function. The, the, what, it's a, a funny image that I find helpful is to think of a valve, you know, like in a bicycle tire, a valve. A valve can be open and lets the air in or a valve can be closed and the air is not able to get through. And yet the valve is just the same thing. It's not two states. It's one thing configured in different ways. And I think if we think of Buddha and Mara as basically an open valve or a closed valve, in other words, Mara is when we close down. Buddha is when we open up. But it's the same thing. There's not one thing against another. It's different modalities of a single state. So if we think of the the human organism, the human organism can be open or the human organism, can be closed. Mara is always associated with metaphors of closure, of shutting down, of of limitation, to limit situation. Buddha is generally associated with emptiness, openness, vastness. But what it is that is open or closed is this organism, this being, this body, this mind. So if we think of it like that, we get, we overcome the, the danger, and I think it is a danger, of thinking of, of there being two forces in a kind of Manichaean, you know, struggle between two powers. It's not like that. It's a single condition we are in, which has different modalities. One of which leads to grief and distress and pain, the other hopefully opens up other possibilities. Let's stop there. Thank you. Uh, We'll sit again in 15 minutes.